is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Mask confusion is reigning in many places as the feds end enforcement of the face covering mandate on planes and mass transit. But a number of airlines and rail systems, they are still insisting that everyone mask up. So what should we do? When is it safe to ditch the mask? We'll go in depth. And will the change calm the conflict in the skies between air passengers and flight attendants or lead to yet more battles? And the war in Ukraine sees Russia beginning its offensive in the east as the Pentagon is out with a new assessment. The IMF says the war is going to hammer the global economy, shrinking growth by nearly a half this year. What does that mean to you? Johnny Depp on the stand in his defamation trial in Virginia. We'll talk about what he's been saying. And NASA plans to send out a message into deep space amid fears that somebody could hear it and then not like us. Yeah, see, I'm not worried about that because if they came here from another planet, first they'd have to figure out where do they wear a mask and where do yes, they not wear a right. mask. And they'll just leave. Well, the, the War of the Worlds, you know, it was yeah. the germs that got them. So yeah, maybe absolutely. we're safe after all. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> he's not here to talk about that, but we'll ask him. We start, we start the question of the day. When and where to wear a mask? Joining us is a top infectious disease expert, Dr. Robert Wachter, who's chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So uh, aliens from space aside, uh, how are we, mere uh, mortals on Earth, in this country, anyway, supposed to figure out when we are or are not supposed to wear a mask when on mass transit? Yeah, I, I mean, I, if, if I figure that we should. <laughs> you know, there's still a fair amount of COVID in the air. It still is somewhat dangerous, less so if you've gotten fully vaccinated and boosted. Uh, if you're on a packed airplane, bus, subway, there's a decent chance that someone there has COVID. And so the fact that that the feds are no longer going to tell you tell you you must wear one does not mean that you shouldn't wear one. And to me, if anything, uh, the imperative to wear one has gone up now that other people around me are not going to wear them. So when I get on a plane bus subway, uh, I will be wearing an N95 and try my darndest to keep it on for the entire for the entire trip. Yeah, let's talk about one way masking, because that's what it's going to be for a lot of people with that N95. uh, How much time does it buy you? How well does it work if the person sitting next to you uh, doesn't have one on. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact is, you know, if the flights I've been on lately, there's a decent chance the person next to you didn't have it on either because people seem to manage to eat and drink for six hours in a row. I don't know <laughs> quite how they do it, but they seem to be doing it. So, you know, this has been, to some extent, if we were depending on everybody around us being masked, we were already in trouble. Um, the the, the fact is I wear an N95 when I go into work and I might be taking care of someone I know has COVID. And in hospitals like mine, there's relatively, there are really very, very few cases of transmission of COVID from an infected patient to a healthcare provider while the provider was wearing an N95 mask. So if you're wearing a, a mask and you're sitting there for six hours on a cross-country flight, uh, particularly if you're vaccinated, which gives you extra protection, I think the chances that you're going to get it from, from that flight are essentially zero. And so, um, you know, it's become a little bit less safe now that the more people are not going to be wearing masks. But I think we have the tools to keep yourself safe, which is why I'm not all that bothered by the mandate going away. I wish it happened by the CDC doing it rather than the judge doing it. But I do think we're going to reach a point where this is the new normal. 
and people do have the means to keep themselves safe on uh, in in settings like public transportation. You, you know, uh, some of the people who seem to be and and I think rightly so very upset. I was reading some comments on social media this morning from people who were saying things like, you know, I booked a flight on a plane, you know, I'm immunocompromised, I'm traveling perhaps with a child who who, uh, is not yet able to be vaccinated. And part of my risk assessment was that I was going to be surrounded, if not by everyone, at least a substantial number of people on that plane having to wear masks. And now those people that I was reading this morning are saying, but now what do we do? Because we kind of think everybody is not going to wear a mask. Right. Yeah. I'll tell you, if I was immunocompromised, I would feel comfortable traveling. I would have gotten four vaccine shots. I would have taken, if I could uh, get it, uh, the monoclonal antibody combo called Evusheld. I would wear the best N95 and well-fitting masks that I could, and I would try my darndest to keep it on for the entire flight, but I would not cancel a trip. I think it's a little harder for a one-year-old. I think for a two through five-year-old who's not vaccinated, if the kid can wear a mask while on public transit, again, I think it's pretty safe. The kids very rarely get sick, but they can. I'm more worried about the long-term consequences of COVID. But for somebody, for a little kid who can get a, who can keep a mask on, I think it's fine. Uh, the group, if I had a one-year-old or so and I was planning a plane flight, I probably would delay it if I could until the vaccines were out. If I couldn't, you sort of have to accept some level of risk that's higher today than it was yesterday. Dr. Robert Wachter, chair of the Department of Medicine, UC San Francisco. Still to come, forecasts from the IMF that the war in Ukraine hitting the world economy like an earthquake, and then Johnny Depp on the stands at his uh, defamation trial. Right now, though, let's get more on the impact of the feds stopping enforcement of that mask mandate for mass transit and air flights. With us is Henry Hartervelt, who's a travel industry analyst with the Atmosphere Research Group. Uh, Henry, first of all, thanks for being with us. So uh, this is a problem, is it not, for almost everybody? You've got some passengers who want masks, some who don't. You've got flight attendants who are tired of fighting with the passengers who don't want masks, yet many of them feel that they're not now going to be safe because everybody on the plane is not going to be masked, or many people won't be. The industry must find itself in quite a pickle. (laughs) They do. This was unexpected, and as is typical with uh, air travel, nobody's happy. The flight attendants, though, and and some of them in the unions were were pushing for this. Some of the airlines were pushing for this to happen, right? And really, they were expecting another couple of weeks if the feds didn't renew it again. So I guess surprising for those who were in mid-flight, but hoped for at least by by some. Correct. So so the industry had accepted that the uh, uh, mask requirement was going to extend through May 3rd. And the understanding was that after that, unless something went terribly wrong, it would lapse. Nobody was prepared for yesterday's announcement. And then there was a lot of speculation and waiting. Would the administration take any action to counter it? Would the DOJ say they were going to appeal it? When it became clear they didn't and the TSA said game over, then the airline scrambled. And so, look, passengers who don't want to wear masks are really happy, but there are a lot of people out there, passengers and airline employees alike, by the way, who are concerned about this. They may have uh, you know, health issues where they want to travel with a mask or need to be with a mask, and they prefer others wearing a mask, too. So 
what I'm curious about is is why do you think the airlines uh, clearly they've chosen a side in this, right? I mean, they've been lobbying some of them anyway for quite some time now to have the mask mandate lifted, but. To your point about how there's this dichotomy, if you got, uh, you know, passengers who want to have masks, and those, what made the airlines decide to side with one particular group in this? I think the airlines heard from enough passengers and enough crew that they didn't like it. And so they went with the majority rules, basically. Uh, so the folks who are unhappy about the mask requirement going away tend to be much less than far fewer than 50% of, of the population. Uh, you know, it, and so the airlines believe that this will, by removing the mask requirement, people will be more comfortable traveling. They will be more likely to travel uh, and that it will help them get more people back on airplanes. We've heard from most of the domestics, right? That um, you wear one if you want. What about the international carriers? The Brits were the first ones to get rid of them. But some of the other airlines uh, have come out and said, uh, hey, if you're on us and you're headed to our country, you're playing by our rules and, and you still got to keep them on. Yeah, you, you know, you raise a very important point. If you are traveling abroad and if you are not traveling on a U.S. airline, do not presume that your airline is mask free check and then double check what its policies will be. Even the U.S. airlines have said that depending on the destination, passengers may be required to wear masks. What they're trying to figure out right now is if the destination requires a mask, do you have to wear it the entire flight, only when the plane enters that country's airspace, or only put the mask on prior to disembarking the plane and entering the terminal? Is there a game plan that you're aware of that the airlines have in the event that uh, infection rates really start climbing, whether with the current uh, Omicron variant or perhaps some future variant? Is there a game plan of what the tripping point would be to go back to mandatory masks, whether or not the government requires it? Yeah, I think the airlines are going to wait for the government to tell them what to do. They are not going to do what they did in 2020, which is stick their own necks out to say, okay, we're going to voluntarily ask people to put masks back on. And look, if uh, uh, circumstances uh, emerge where we're seeing a rapid increase or a dangerous increase in COVID, where we see mask requirements going back on, possible lockdowns or anything else like that, they're probably bigger fish to fry than worrying about wearing a mask on a plane. We're, you know, in that case, we are almost back at 2020 type of scenarios. Henry Hardevelt, travel industry analyst, Atmosphere Research Group. Later on in the show, a NASA's latest project criticized by some for possibly getting us into trouble with aliens, you know, provided the aliens exist. Right, that's all we need. We, re- <laughs> we really want to pick a fight. We've had enough yeah, lately. Exactly. Well, Stop with the aliens. Yeah, right now, though, Russia stepping up attacks on Ukraine's eastern industrial heartland and pouring more forces into the country. Both sides call this a new phase of the war, this after the Russians failed to take Kiev. At the same time, though, the Pentagon says the Russians have lost about 25 percent of the combat power they sent into Ukraine at the start of the war. Joining us is top Russia expert at USC, Robert English. Robert, thanks for being back with us. So this is a, uh, I would imagine, a very critical phase of this war, both for Ukraine and, and the Russians, if we accept the fact, or the notion anyway, that what Russia's intent now is 
to essentially carve out the eastern portion of Ukraine for its own. That is correct. Um, they've already carved out part of that with the separatist um, Donetsk and Luhansk mini-states, separatist states going back to 2014, and now they're trying to enlarge those, probably doubling the territory they have in that eastern region. And I don't think they can do much more than that. And it's, of course, still at issue how successful they'll be here. They have the preponderance of power, but the Ukrainians have the preponderance of spirit and dedication. And I, my, my guess is the Russians will take some additional territory at very high cost. And after another two or three weeks of fighting, uh, we'll see a ceasefire. And that's where it will end. Yeah, what do people need to prepare themselves for over those few weeks? Because as bad as it's been so far, I mean, there were plenty of, of, of the watchers and commentators saying this is the actual war. What we're going to see over these over these few weeks is is going to be bloody. Yeah, this is the climax. The Russians lost the Battle of Kiev. They did gain some territory um, inland from Crimea. And now they're trying to link up firmly Crimea with the entire Donbass region in this final battle. This will be the biggest and the culminating one. Um, we know that the Russians can lose, meaning that they will expend enormous resources. They will lose thousands more soldiers. They will have half of their remaining tanks and armored personnel carriers destroyed by drones and Ukrainian um, artillery and counter artillery. And yet Putin will still proclaim victory. He controls his society. He controls the media. And it seems like he's aiming at May, uh, May 9th this anniversary of the end of World War II as a kind of victory day for this war as well. But is it, regardless of, of how uh, Putin decides to uh, characterize it to his own people, would it in the end potentially be a draw? Uh, by that I mean if Russia essentially controls enough of the eastern part of Ukraine, which is an industrial base, right? It's, an, it's a, a real significant part of the economy of Ukraine, right? If, if Russia can manage to control it, essentially control it anyway, if not if not every single inch of the territory, uh, could he not claim victory, Putin, for that? And on the same token, Zelensky can say, yeah, but he didn't get Kiev and the western portion of the country is intact. So we were victorious. Isn't it a draw? I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, but I would add one more. Uh, I would shade it a little bit in the pro-Ukrainian direction, in that this is not the industrial heartland of Ukraine. You're right. It's the former industrial heartland. But this is where you have coal mines, right, which are less and less productive and have less and less place with modern industry and, you know, renewable technology. This is where you have the old steel industry where they build locomotives and turbines. But those factories have either been destroyed already or they've lost their markets and it's kind of on hold. And that's before the shells start flying and the Battle of Donbass is about to be joined. I expect it will be shattered. And instead of being an industrial prize, it will be a, a pit that needs billions to rebuild. So um, I think that Zelensky and the Ukrainian side will say, you know, we did pretty damn well to stand up to the Russians and the little strip of territory they gained at enormous cost um, isn't really worth that much. We have the heartland of our country. We have where the, our Ukrainian people have always lived. Those regions were heavy with Russian speakers. Maybe it's not the worst outcome. 
we don't have to spend billions trying to rebuild this restive separatist region anyway. It's now Putin's headache. I know this is this is blasphemy the way I'm speaking, <laughs> but this is how wars end. And you're right. It's a draw, but it's a draw that tilts in Ukraine's favor, because when a little guy stands up and bloodies the nose of a big guy and fights him off, that's a victory. Robert English, top Russia experts at USC. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felton. As we've been telling you, the war in Ukraine set to enter a bloody new phase. The Russian forces seeking to gain control of the east and the IMF today out with a stark warning. The war will do heavy damage to the global economy, slashing the growth a um, few percentage points. With us is David Wilcox, senior economist at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and Bloomberg Economics. David, thanks for being here. So even uh, as the war does continue and the end date is uncertain, I mean, uh, plenty of this is already already baked in these these losses that we're going to have and the effect on the economy and we've already been seeing the ripple effects absolutely most of the ripple effects are showing up in the form of higher prices uh, including at the gasoline pump and at the grocery store ukraine is a, a major source of grains and other agricultural products uh, for countries around the world and the conflict is pushing up those prices the possibility that the Europeans may ban the importation of Russian oil and natural gas is pushing up energy prices. Is anybody going out on the limb and predicting recession? Here in the U.S., I think the possibility of this event pushing us into recession is relatively remote. The main problem we have in the U.S. is uh, that the economy is actually running a little too hot. So that's why the Federal Reserve is moving to raise interest rates. Um, if this is another source of slowing in the economy, uh, nobody would welcome the suffering, the human tragedy that comes with it. But uh, it will make actually the Fed's job a little easier. For the Europeans, the consideration is really quite different. Their economy is not as strong as ours. And they're much more directly affected by the conflict. Yeah, whatever happens here is going to be much worse there. And, and the links, especially to Russia, they are a lot stronger, as, as plenty of people have discussed before. That's correct. Uh, Russia is represents a much more uh, important trading partner for the Europeans. Of course, there are several countries there, as, been, as has been widely discussed, that depend critically on Russian uh, oil and natural gas, uh, Germany being the leading example. But it, it, globalization, as you know, it, is so now deeply rooted. How do you really keep that contagion from spreading? So if we don't initially have a recession here, but say you have a recession in, in a Western European country, um, or maybe even China, uh, I mean, their numbers aren't doing as well now either, right? Uh, how do we avoid then not getting sort of sucked into that downward whirlpool? We will feel the effects. You're absolutely right. Uh, but again, we're starting from a position of tremendous economic strength. The unemployment rate at the moment is back near a 50-year low, uh, and inflation is too high. So uh, right now, if anything, the predominant problem with respect to the strength of the economy in the U.S. is that it's running a little too hot. Uh, the bigger issue here is that this is likely to be one more event in the wrong direction on the inflation front. We're coming out of 12 months here, 
where time after time, factor after factor has pushed the inflation rate up. This, uh, this horrendous war is having another push in that same direction. How much are the potential food shortage problems now being noticed or talked about more? Because it's all started with, with gas prices and energy, right? And then people started to remember, like, as you mentioned, breadbasket, and not only for prices and what you buy and, and, and ship out to other countries, but also humanitarian aid just for, for people in, in countries that need the help. They can't get the food now from Ukraine. Yeah, the the worst effects are going to be actually felt in the poorer countries around the world. Ukraine is a supplier of grains to many third world countries, uh, and their food security situation is going to be really adversely affected. As you suggest, food markets around the world really are global in nature. And so when other countries have a harder time supplying themselves, they drive up uh, prices, and we'll see some of that at home. That effect will be relatively small. The bigger effect for us on the price front will be with respect to oil. And there, the big shoe to drop, the big question is, will the uh, Europeans impose a blanket ban on importation of Russian oil? Let me briefly circle back to the Fed, because... You know, and we've asked this question of many people before in this show. How much can we count on the Fed, Federal Reserve, doing the right thing on this? I mean, they have a kind of spotty record historically uh, in getting it right. Well, monetary policy is a messy business. And if you're looking for perfection, it's not the line of work you should get into. Um, No, that's why I'm in this line. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine how bad things would be if he was on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, What uh, what they're aiming to do is something that historically has been quite difficult, and that is to uh, take inflation out of the economy without creating a, a recession. I think there's a pathway to success in that endeavor. Um. If we can get the virus behind us, if we can get the economy looking more normal so that, for example, people feel comfortable going back to restaurants to the same extent, doing leisure and travel to the same extent as before, that's going to reduce some pressure on our supply chains. And that'll mean that there should be some lower pressure on uh, the prices of goods. That's where the main inflation problem has been over the past year or so. If that happens, that'll make the Fed's job a whole lot easier in bringing inflation down because it will imply that the Fed won't have to crush the economy in order to control inflation. David Wilcox, senior economist, Peterson Institute for International Economics and Bloomberg Economics. The war in Ukraine has created 5 million refugees and around 10 million people are displaced inside the country. Let's get more now on conditions around Kiev. Joining us is Anton, a photographer who we first spoke with about two weeks ago in the wake of reports of that just awful massacre in Bucha. Anton, thank you for uh, coming back with us and talking to us again. Um, well, I remember looking at the images, and um, we had it on our website uh, that you took as a photographer, and, and you know, uh, very vivid. Um, and I'm wondering, since the time we talked a few weeks ago, what more has your camera eye seen? 
Uh, yes, I traveled uh, a few cities more after the butcher. I've been in places uh, where Russia troops um, had a temporary headquarters uh, and uh, they abandoned most of them. Uh, and I visited those places and uh, traveled with the sappers and engineers uh, who was disarming the mines and uh, shells that didn't explode. What were some of those places like? What did they leave behind? I mean, stories we've heard from other people and, and have seen, you know, the images of when they do clear out, they they loot. They just they take everything they can and then they leave these these cities and towns barren. Uh, yes, uh, they loot uh, everything they can. Uh, they collect in their uh, st- uh, stuff that they looted and stash uh, in some basements or other places. And uh, the civilians, uh, after they leave, uh, left, uh, they start looking for, for this stuff. And uh, yes, they left a lot of tanks and a lot of APCs, uh, undamaged even, and of course, uh, some of their uh, dead friends. Of course, as you know uh, all too well, Anton, wars are, are comprised of individual battles, and some one side wins, some the other side wins. What's the sense that you're getting as you travel around taking pictures of the mood of the country now? Because since the last time we did speak a few weeks ago, Uh, You know, there were significant uh, wins for Ukraine. Uh, The Russians didn't manage, of course, to get Kyiv. But there are some significant uh, wins for the Russians in the eastern part of the country. What's the general mood now? Uh, It's still unchanged. Uh, The people are fighting and uh, the people are optimistic about uh, the war that is going on because we are still uh, thinking that we will win this war and believe in it. Uh, me personally, I, uh, my opinion is that uh, we have um, more things to come, uh, but um, uh, I still think that we will win. Yeah, how hard is it to stay and, and keep that optimism I mean, in the face of, of what we are expecting and what you're expecting over the next couple of weeks, I mean, this battle for the East, you, you say it, the mood is unchanged, but it has to be on your mind that this this next phase is 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 starting to happen. Yes, it's already begun. Uh, it's uh, just uh, the, uh, the Ukrainian forces and the Russian military forces are changing with the um, artillery artillery fire uh, to each other in this state, but uh, the main battle is yet to come. Well, it's pretty hard because I think we have we will have uh, some casualties and I think it will be um, pre- pretty much, pretty big casualties, I think. But uh, Russia will lose more uh, than just men. They will lose this war eventually. Well, I was going to ask, when you say that you're confident that Ukraine will win, what your definition of win is. Uh, if the Russians, for example, uh, manage to, to take a significant portion uh, of the eastern part, certainly the areas that uh, 
have been in dispute uh, since 2014, if they manage to solidify their control over that and perhaps add some other places like Mariupol. Uh, and yet the western portion of the country where you are remains free of Russian uh, interference and control. Is that still a win? Well, of course not. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, this won't come to this. Uh, uh, apparently, uh, we did, do not have uh, the circumstances uh, in this direction uh, that we will lose the eastern part of our country. Uh, the bad, uh, the worst outcome of this uh, conflict, uh, the worst that I think, it will be completely losing the Donbass region. Uh, but I f- still think that uh, it won't happen. Since we last talked, has there been anything that, that really affected you in the moment? I remember last time when you were going to Bucha and, and you were going to go ask people about what they had seen and what they experienced. There were some people, and you said that they insisted first that they feed you, that they give you some food. They were in a tent cooking on the street because the home was burned out. And you said, you know, here these people are with with no place to live, and and they're offering me some food, which which just speaks everything to to those. I think it was Borscht. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That says everything about those people and how they're hanging on. Uh, yes, they're hanging out pretty well. Uh, I met some uh, old woman in Motijan village. Uh, it's west from Kiev. Uh, some volunteers offered uh, some food to her and uh, she refused, uh, saying that she got anything that she needs. Uh, but uh, in the same time, behind her back, her house was completely destroyed. Uh, this contrast is just, uh, I don't know the word, astonishing. Um, yes. Uh, in the coming weeks, I am, will travel to Chernihiv. It's uh, the city of north uh, from, Ukraine, uh, from Kiev. Uh, it's about uh, 70% destroyed uh, uh, during the bombing. Uh, and I will see to it how the things there anton thank you for speaking to us and we do hope that we can speak again and stay safe he's a photographer there we, we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago yeah. and uh and hope to in, in the future anton thank you johnny depp took the stand today his uh, defamation trial against ex-wife amber heard who uh, accused him of domestic abuse never did i myself r- reach the point of um striking misheard in any way trial continuing in fairfax virginia monitoring and joining us ted johnson of deadline ted thanks for being here so this is all relating back to an op-ed that she wrote correct for people who haven't been here every step of the way and basically they both kind of accuse each other at this point of abusing each other yes yes uh this is uh an interesting trial it's a defamation trial uh, so they each accused each other of lying about the other. Uh, but I consider it more like a second divorce trial between Johnny Depp and <laughs> second Amber divorce Heard. Trial. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, be, because this is um, this is getting into the nitty gritty of their relationship, uh, all the ugliness of their relationship. And um, it's just so unusual, though, that you would see something like this play out in a public forum. In this case, in a courtroom in Virginia, a lot of people ask, well, 
why is this case in Virginia? Why is this celebrity trial in Virginia? Well, this op-ed that is at the center of Johnny Depp's defamation claim was published in the Washington Post, and Virginia is part of the circulation area, uh-huh. the print edition of the paper. So that's that's the simplest explanation. So, Ted, for, for all those people who may be thinking, I'm not going to really watch or listen to the trial because I don't really want to get into all the the dirt and how horrible their marriage was, but really do want to get into all the dirt and how horrible their marriage was. From the testimony thus far, how horrible was their marriage? It was pretty bad. I mean, I I, I put myself, I try to put myself in the um, perspective of a juror. And uh, it's being held in Fairfax County. It's a pretty well-to-do county. It's a suburban, it's suburban Washington, D.C. Um, nevertheless, I can only imagine these jurors are, what world do these people live in? I mean, up to today, up to today, uh, we had discussion of Johnny Depp's private island, private penthouses, <laughs> private doctors, private nurses. Um, it's just such a, uh, a rarefied atmosphere that has been described. And at the same time, these tales of uh, drug use, these tales of detoxification, um, it's just something that I don't think the jury necessarily related to. Uh, you mean they don't, you, don't think, Johnny, you, don't, you don't think a juror can relate to having a private island? <laughs> not, not exactly. <laughs> so that's why I thought it was significant when Johnny Depp takes the stand today. What does he start talking about? He starts talking about family. He starts talking about the, why he brought this case. He, it wasn't just because of him. It was because of uh, his kids, the schoolyard taunts that his kids had been getting because uh, it had been in the media that he was this domestic abuser. Uh, he starts talking about his own childhood and this dysfunctional family. So I think there was a definite effort on the part of Johnny Depp and his team to really try to relate to jurors because people all have kind of uh, colorful family backgrounds uh, in their own past that I think they were perhaps hoping that Johnny Depp could make some connection with them. Is she set to take the stand at some point? Yes. uh, From what I understand, she will take the stand. Uh, Tomorrow will be a pretty significant day because so far we've heard uh, pretty much Johnny Depp uninterrupted. It's his attorney questioning him. He's been allowed to make these very long statements and very long stories about his past, about his acting career, about his relationship with her, um, and there hasn't been uh, much pushback. That will change tomorrow when they have opportunity for cross-examination. And that is, you know, Depp has been very halting in his testimony so far. I would expect that we'll get much shorter answers tomorrow once they uh, once they start to uh, cross-examine him. Do you want to tell us about the finger thing, the argument over how that happened is, or how it didn't? Yeah. Now, this is one of the mysteries of it. Uh, back in 2015, uh, uh, Johnny Depp severed his finger. Uh, this was when they were in Australia. He was shooting a Pirates movie there. Uh, one story is that Depp, uh, they were in the midst of an argument with uh, Amber Heard, uh, he was in the midst of an argument with Amber Heard, and she threw a bottle, and that is what uh, sliced uh, the top of his one of his fingers off. 
the other argument is that this was Depp uh, in a fit of anger, smashing his finger on a phone. Uh, so I'm not sure if we're going to get some clarity on exactly how this happened. So far, we've heard we haven't heard Depp talk about it a whole lot. And we've heard these different accounts of what what exactly happened and kind of the aftermath of what happened. Ted Johnson of Deadline. Ted, thanks. Well, researchers at JPL are talking about sending a message into deep space to see if there is life out there. Joining us now is Jean-Luc Margot, a professor of Earth, Planetary and Space Sciences at UCLA. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Is that a good idea to let everybody know, here we are, come and find us? Um, Well, most people in the city community that search for extraterrestrial intelligence community do not think it's a particularly good idea and uh, think that international consultation should probably be uh, uh, required before sending such a message. Yeah, because, and let's explore that for a second, because we don't always know that if they're out there, they're going to be nice to us, right? And if they can get here, that means they're, uh, you know, way more advanced than us, so we could be squashed like a bug. (laughs) Well, it's true that other civilizations in the galaxy are um, almost certainly, if they exist, are almost certainly more advanced than we are. However, uh, interstellar travel is difficult, and there's no guarantee that they could uh, come and reach the solar system. On the other hand, uh, the distances are so vast in the Milky Way that it would take an extremely long time for the mes- message to reach its destination. So I'm not particularly worried about uh, an alien invasion, if that's what you're worried about. Well, the idea of, of a message, though, I mean, in, haven't we, in effect, been sending messages since we began doing broadcasts and all the other things that we we project out into space old episodes of i love lucy yeah right? <laughs> that's right <laughs> lucy i'm home <laughs> yeah it's out there you're, you're quite right we've been doing this with our radio and tv uh, transmissions however we've only been doing this for a few decades and therefore uh because signals travel at the speed of light those signals have only reached something like 50 light years away from the sun. And that volume is a tiny, tiny little bubble compared to the volume of the galaxy. So we've effectively not reached many stars. This message that they are talking about sending, what are they thinking that it should or will say? It's a, it's a binary coded message. In other words, a sequence of zeros and ones, which is the most simple mathematical language you can think of, which is thought to be universally understood or that any other civilization would understand the binary code. And they are proposing to include, as we've done in the past, by the way, uh, basic concepts about the Earth, uh, human population, DNA, um, and even Earth's location. You know what worries me? We send a message out into space. We get a message back that says, you're using the semicolon wrong. (laughs) That could happen. (laughs) Although, again, it would happen in maybe 40,000 years by the time it reaches it. By the time uh, it comes back. It's a very long game of telephone going on. Um, The Voyagers, right? Those had the big gold discs that that whoever found them could play, and those those are still floating around. Those are still going. They're more than 100 astronomical units away, so they're still, you know, technically uh, within the solar system in the sense that the nearest star is um, much further away. 
Um, but we've also sent uh, a message in 1974 at the... Um, uh, dedication ceremony for an upgrade of the Arecibo telescope, the largest telescope on Earth. And that message is, is traveling at the speed of light, so much faster than the Voyager uh, spacecraft. So who would make the final decision on whether we even send this message out? Well, we can't prevent people from uh, broadcasting things, obviously, but the, the the general consensus in the SETI community is that we ought to have proper consultation, maybe through one of the international uh, or, uh, organizations like the International Astronomical Union to really think about these issues and make a recommendation as to whether we should or should not be sending messages. By the way, uh, there's plenty of work that can be done receiving uh, messages, right? So we can use our telescopes um, to try to detect uh, civilizations in the galaxy. With the message that that'll go, if it goes, um, is it meant as a "here we are" and here's how to find us, or just a "hey, we exist"? It's yeah, it's a basic information about uh, the fact that there's another that there's a civilization in the solar system, and it they do propose to include a map of the solar system to find the, lo the location of the solar system within the galaxy. But, you know, I guess it's the age-old question. If there are all these other civilizations out there somewhere, and presumably some far more advanced than us, how come we haven't gotten from them some sort of a message? Or are they, because they're so smart, they just don't send one? Well, that's another great question. We haven't actually looked for very long uh, or over a broad range of frequencies or over the entire sky. So we sampled a small amount of the search space out there. There are analogies that uh, suggest that we sampled, you know, between a, a cup or a swimming pool out of the, out of the Earth's oceans, right? So that's a, an indication of how much we searched. And so it's entirely possible that there are civilizations out there. We just haven't uh, received a message yet. It's going to take a while, I think, to find us or to find them if they're around. <laughs> and, and if their battery lasts that long. Well, there's also what, um, you know, besides Voyager, there's the, the Roadster, right, with the spaceman oh, yeah. in it. He's, yeah. he's still going somewhere. And you can track him online, right? I, I'm sorry, which one are you referring the, the, to? When Elon Musk sent the... Uh, the guy okay. in the spacesuit in the, in the <laughs> Tesla Roadster. He's still floating around out there somewhere. Yeah. Right. That's, that's very local. That's around Mars somewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, he's headed his way. Uh, Jean-Luc Margot, professor of Earth, planetary, and space sciences at uh, UCLA. You're flying your spaceship someday, and there goes the Tesla next to you.